but I think that what we've seen in recent years is such a fundamental realignment of British politics. Um, this is not a blip. This is, I think, a serious realignment. And many places in Britain, what you might call post-industrial Britain, provincial Britain, small town Britain, working class communities that once upon a time voted Labour in a tribal sense, now feel very little attachment and very little affinity for the Labour Party. Welcome to another episode of Uncommon Decency. Uh, listeners of the show may recall Peter Mandelson, the veteran cabinet secretary who was appointed European Commissioner for Trade in the late 2000s upon helping orchestrate the Labour Party's social liberal pivot as one of Tony Blair's most trusted spin doctors. Mandelson's incarnation of Labour's notorious third way didn't just owe to his Europhile credentials and his support for Blairite domestic programs. By racking up a string of landslide victories in the northeastern constituency of Hartlepool, his career became a testament to the party's potential to press ahead with market-based and socially progressive reforms, whilst retaining its historic foothold in working-class enclaves across the north of England. Fast forward to a month ago, and Labour's gradual loss of its core electorate in the intervening decade was nowhere in better display than in the by-election held on May 6th that saw the Tories flip the Hartlepool seat with a voting share 23 points larger. The political realignment, much touted since the conservative general election landslide in January 2019, is often chalked up to Labour's ambivalence on Brexit and to Jeremy Corbyn's radical neo-socialism. And yet its contours are in fact proving deeper and more lasting as both of these original sins recede in the rearview mirror and voters get to weigh Boris Johnson's promises to level up the North-South divide and economic opportunity again Keir Starmer's declared reversion to centrist politics. Beyond local variations, the trajectory for the British working class vote seems to be one of unprecedented disaffection with the modern Labour Party. Today, we gauge the causes, extent, and nuances of this trend with two leading observers of the country's shifting class-based politics. On one uh, end of the line, we have Paul Embry, who has perhaps spoken most eloquently at the Labour's perceived abandonment of the working class in pursuit of a lead liberal cosmopolitanism, he is best known for his regular columns at Unheard and for, and for publishing in November 2020 a widely successful book, Despise, Why the Modern Left Hates the Working Class, which is a scathing critique that also builds on, on his experience as a trade unionist. Indeed, Paul was a, a, is a, a lifelong firefighter who served on the Fire Brigade's union and later became the prominent uh, Brexit campaigner. And on the other end of the line, we're delighted to have also Nick Timothy, who was observed uh, and commented on much of the same trends from his side of the traditional partisan divide as a, as a leading conservative writer and thinker. His book, Remaking One Nation, just published in March uh, last year, argued for conservatives to move past the ultra-liberal orthodoxies inherited from Thatcherism and restore a greater sense of solidarity and the common good at the core of the Tory agenda. So, Paul and Nick, thank you so much for, for making time and joining, joining us on the show. I'd like to get started first with uh, some background on, on the Hartlepool results. We'll start with Paul and then, and then turn back to Nick. Uh, Paul, uh, could you give us just a sense of, of how bad Labour's defeat was in, in Hartlepool in the by-election? Uh, what, what were some of the local circumstances that played into the, the race? And in what ways it may have differed from the Tories' piercing through the red wall in the 2019 general race? 
Well, I think it's extremely serious for the Labour Party when you consider that Hartlepool was one of those constituencies um, that were traditionally Labour. Um, it's voted Labour pretty much every time since I think the seat in its current incarnation was was created in 1974. Um, and it's, it's broadly what you would call a traditional working class town, um, a post-industrial town in many respects. Um, and the sort of place where most people would not ever have considered really voting anything other than Labour. Um, and certainly wouldn't have, have considered returning a Conservative Member of Parliament. Um, but I think that what we've seen in recent years is such a fundamental realignment of British politics. Um, this is not a blip. This is, I think, a serious realignment of British politics. And many places um, in Britain, what you might call post-industrial Britain, provincial Britain, small town Britain, working class communities that once upon a time um, voted Labour in a tribal sense, uh, now feel very little attachment and very little affinity for the Labour Party. Um, and now um, the taboo in many respects has been broken. There was always a stigma in these communities to voting for the Conservative Party, but that went in 2019 with the general election. Um, and we've seen with the uh, with the Hartlepool result that having done it once, people in these communities won't hesitate to, to vote Conservative again. Mm. And Nick, how do you how do you thought, uh, how, how did you see the result? You uh, obviously a lot of your commentary is focused on the, the Tory side of this uh, equation. Uh, what, what were your, some of your takeaways from the Hartlepool result? Well, it's really telling that lots of people, lots of commentators after this result tried to downplay it and say, well, it's not that surprising. It's the latest um, uh, part of the pattern uh, that was set in you know, the elections of 17 and 19, where more of the regional vote, uh, provincial vote was coming towards the Tories. That is extraordinary because I think, um, I think I'm right in saying that uh, barring a couple of freak elections where things like new parties split the vote and things like that. This is only the second time uh, an incumbent government has taken the seat in the by-election from the opposition party. Um, uh, the, first, the first time was actually in Copeland in, um, in 2017. Um, and the fact, I think, that, uh, that many people are downplaying it in that way shows that they are resigned to... Uh, almost the inevitability of uh, the loss of uh, the voters Paul just described um, from the Labour Party. And without this you know, key part of the traditional Labour electoral coalition, it's very difficult to see how Labour can ever win again. They've already lost a large chunk of their traditional coalition in Scotland. Uh, they're now losing another large chunk in uh, in provincial England, and they are being reduced to uh, a new core vote uh, of uh, public sector workers, uh, inner city, urban constituencies, university towns. And it's very difficult from where we are right now to see how Labour can uh, put together a coalition that could ever take them to power again. And we're going to work, go through the causes that drive working class voters away from the Labour Party. And arguably, they're quite um, diverse. There could be some kind of unfulfilled craving for communitarian politics, maybe a baser rejection of, you know, uh, woke mantras, or maybe they're just making Labour pay the price of, of Brexit. 
Um, Nick, what do you think is an adequate ordering of these different factors? And also, can we go back to not the 2019 election, but the 2017 election where you were advising Theresa May on um, the general election coming up and you had targeted a lot of these Red Wall seats, maybe not um, Peter Mandelson's former seat in, in Hartlepool, but a lot of these seats you had targeted and failed to do so. Why do you think this realignment had worked so brilliantly um, over the past two years, but hadn't quite been able to work in 2017. Is there also a little bit about the message versus a messenger going on here? Yeah, there's a little bit of that. I mean, what happened in 17 was uh, we moved from, you know, a very distant second or third in a lot of constituencies to a much closer uh, second place. And then and then we got over the line in a lot of these places in 19. I think there were, there were quite a few differences. I mean, you know, Boris is a brilliant campaigner and, uh, Theresa is uh, not, <laughs> shall we say. Um, um, but also, I think the context had changed quite dramatically. In 17, Labour were able to say um, uh, that they accepted the Brexit referendum uh, to their voters who had voted leave and were able to imply to Remain voters that uh, that somehow they might overturn it or weaken it to a point that it wasn't really Brexit. And they got away with riding those two horses. By 19, um, you know, it was very clear that Parliament was just not prepared to accept the referendum result, and the Labour Party in Parliament was a big part of that problem. Uh, and then I think there were some other there are some other things too. So in 17, uh, I don't think um, I don't think we managed to make things stick with Corbyn in terms of his past support for uh, Britain's enemies. Um, terrorist organizations but also um you know countries like russia um but by 19 he'd actually um demonstrated uh that that indeed was his approach to uh um to security policy and world affairs by taking russia's side over the scripple case and refusing to back the government when uh chemical weapons had been used in syria and i think that those two things happened in quite quick succession which i think broke him in the eyes of a certain number of voters, um, so I think that I think there were there were several differences, uh, partly about the message and partly about the messenger um, between seventeen and nineteen. And I think I mean in terms of the ordering, I mean I, I, I don't know precisely what is more important than another, um, but I think um, a large part of this realignment is coming from. Um, changes in in the Labour Party and and in the left around the Western world, where old ideas that were sort of axiomatic uh, patriotism and shared identity that makes solidarity possible, and that solidarity then makes redistribution and universal public services and things like that possible, um, have become quite unfashionable on the left uh, as as the fashion has become to be more interested in um, you know, militant identity politics and critical race theory. And, and the, you know, the left basically want to um, balkanize countries, uh, which, which destroys the solidarity that makes their economic policies possible. Um, and, and I think the centre-right parties in the Tory party in Britain have the opportunity to... Um, uh, to take advantage of this in electoral terms and hopefully to change uh, in ways that make them the agents of economic policies that are more helpful to 
to the regions and to people on more modest incomes and so on. Um, uh, but they're, they're only reacting to um, a change in context, which is being driven by uh, a mix of um, sort of intellectual and demographic changes, which are causing the left itself to change quite dramatically. Um, Paul, um, where do you stand with ordering of these different factors? Obviously, we're not asking for a precise uh, um, a ranking, but where do you kind of see yourself here? And also, do you have maybe a few words on this kind of historic irony of a lot of these voters having kind of been heavily impacted by a, a Tory austerity in the last decade or so? And in the end, ending up supporting um, Brexit and then supporting the Tory parties. And there's some kind of irony of history going on here as well. Um, I tend to agree with Nick in the sense it's, it's difficult to sort of place them in a, in a particular order. But I think all of, the, all of the things that have been mentioned have to a greater or lesser degree impacted on the, the relationship between the Labour Party and its traditional vote. Um, and I think fundamentally... What's at play is a Labour Party that has shifted away from its traditional base, not only shifted away from its base, but often looks at that uh, base with contempt. I mean, hence the hence the sort of title of my book, Why the Modern Left Loathes the Working Class. Um, and I think that's linked to the fact that over probably about the last 30 years, the, the Labour Party itself has changed very fundamentally in, a, in, a, in an ideological way, in a demographic way. Um, it's become uh, a party almost now for the professional and managerial classes. It's become a party that, as Nick touched on, is rooted in our fashionable cities and our university towns. Um, it's a party which is wedded to the concept of a kind of militant cosmopolitan liberalism. Um, it's a party for Twitter, for student radicals, for the woke, for the, you know, the, the, the social activist. And I think many people who, who, you know, once upon a time, as I said, considered themselves tribally Labour, look at the party now and think, actually, you don't look anything like me, you don't sound anything like me, you don't understand me, you don't reflect my priorities. Um, and I really think you treat me with contempt. Um, and it's no coincidence that as the Labour Party itself went through that very fundamental transformation, so the, the, the link with its working class base has begun, to, has begun to weaken seriously. And I think, I mean, the interesting thing about the 2017 election is, I mean, I, I think part, the fascinating thing I find about that is that here we were seven years at the time, um, into, into Tory rule, um, you know, the first five years of the Tory and Lib Dem coalition. Um, and yet the Labour Party, having been beaten um, seven years after being in opposition, having still been beaten uh, after seven years of austerity, by the way, um, were cock-a-hoop about that. And, you know, I, I'm a member of the party. I've been in the party for 25 years. I was looking around in 2017 in despair a party that had once again been beaten in an election for, for the third time on the trot, as it was at the time, um, but was treating it like some fantastic victory. And I think the, the, the problem with that is, in many respects, it masked the real problems inside the party because people thought, actually, we'll be on our way to victory at the next election. Um, so it was, in some respects, the worst possible thing um, that could have happened. But you know, what, what Labour has increasingly done over recent years is, is fail to understand um, that 
that in, a, in an age where we're constantly buffeted by the, the storms of globalization and rapid, rapid demographic change, that there is a, a hankering in many working class communities um, for stability, for those associated bonds of solidarity, that social solidarity um, that Nick talked about, that sense of profound sense of, of belonging and place. You know, often these places have, have people uh, with traditional values, a, a sense of patriotism, love for their country, etc. And Labour has completely failed to to understand that. And and my experience of these places, having having grown up in one, is actually by and large these people are not opposed to change. They know the world changes. They know the world moves on. But they want it done at a pace and a scale which they can cope with. Uh, and anything that happens that ruptures that social solidarity in a violent way, um, they react against. And they look at what the Labour Party did, particularly, I think, in the first decade of this century, where Labour, New Labour, as it was under Tony there, very much embraced that, that sort of globalisation um, and everything that went with it in terms of open borders, etc. And when you look at what that was causing in these communities in terms of deindustrialization and rapid demographic change, these communities didn't really feel that they were being benefited by it. And they looked at Labour and thought, actually, you're embracing a system and a way of life and an economic model that is, is rupturing and fragmenting our community, and you're telling us to suck it up because it's good for us. So, so I think that first decade of this century was was pivotal in breaking that link with the working class, and that chasm has just widened, I think, in the years mm. since. Right, and and it seems you know just in the wake of um, in the wake of the Hartlepool defeat, and just as with any defeat of that that magnitude, it seems that you know it, it was followed by by the routine motions of, you know, infighting within the party, kind of the clashes between the different wings of the Labour Party. And, you know, you, you begin to wonder for all the reasons that Paul just listed, how much of this is, determ is, is, um, is uh, you know, laid, laid in stone? How, how, how deterministic are, are the changes that, that the Labour Party is going through, right? It, it, just, just as uh, Labour lost in Hartlepool, uh, the results that it, it, it got in other parts of the country, primarily London, where we're looking a, a lot better. And so that the realignment of its electorate around the urban elites uh, with uh, with cosmopolitan aspirational uh, worldviews seems almost, um, you know, predetermined. It, it seems like this is a, a stronger trend than than anything that that uh, the, the Labour Party's leadership can can really uh, stem and, and counteract. Right. And so I wonder uh, I mean, again, this is happening despite the efforts of, of the new leadership under Keir Starmer to uh, to uh, to slow down the shift. So it, it, I, I wonder, and, and we'll start with with Paul, uh, just going off of, of uh, your comments there, and then turn back to Nick. To Nick, how much of how much of this do you think is um, is, um, is is demographically determined? Right? How much how much can Labour really uh, do in terms of the messaging and the the policy priorities to to win back the voters? It, it seems like. As you were uh, as you were saying earlier, a lot of this is, is tribal, right? There's a sense of um, there's a sense of uh, disaffection that that cuts deeper than than uh, than you know the, the support of certain communities for policy priorities. This is this is really happening at a deeper level. Are you are you deterministic in that sense, Paul? Well, I, I think it's certainly possible, actually, that Labour will never again uh, win the support of, of large sections of the, the working class in Britain. Um, I think that such such has been uh, the deepness of the, the rupture um, that I don't know if it's a gap that can ever be closed. And in fact, I think there are people 
within the Labour Party and the wider Labour movement who are almost reconciled to, to that fact. Um, there are certainly people, I've spoken to them, who think that Labour should now simply try to, to, to concentrate on consolidating its new kind of middle class metropolitan uh, youth um, liberal cosmopolitan base, you know, the people who in large numbers voted remain in the in the Brexit referendum uh, and that actually, you know, what you might call the, the traditional working class, the blue collar constituencies need to be written off because, you know, they're never going to vote Labour again. And actually, you know, they're a bit reactionary. So do we really want their support? I mean, that attitude does exist in the in the Labour Party. Um, I think that would be doomed to failure. Um, I don't think it would work electorally. Uh, and furthermore, I think it would be an absolute betrayal of everything that Labour stands for. The Labour Party was created, you know, over 100 years ago now, um, in order to, 125 years ago now, whatever it was, um, in order to, to speak for the voiceless, for the most disadvantaged people in society, for the people who, whose only power was their, their Labour power um, in places such as Hartlepool and other working class towns across Britain. And if Labour actively decides to sever any link with those communities, um, then frankly it wouldn't be the it wouldn't be the Labour Party anymore. Um, so so you know these debates are going on inside the Labour Party. Um, but but the truth is even if the Labour Party had a strategy to win these places back, and you know nominally at least there is a stra strategy in existence, um, the gap that is there to be closed is so enormous that I cannot see it happening now for, for several years. That's the truth of it. Sure. And, um, and, and turning back to Nick, uh, I mean, conversely to what uh, Paul has just outlined, Nick, um, it seems like, you know, there, there was this, this long-standing prejudice in these working class communities in the north and east of, of England against the, the Tory party as being the sort of the nasty party, right? The, the party of austerity and, and cuts in public services and public spending and that there was no, no way that these communities could ever embrace uh, a conservative agenda under, under any leadership. And yet, uh, the, the recent electoral cycle show that, you know, there can be a, a connection on, on the sort of the communitarian, uh, you know, uh, agenda that, that you advocate in your book. And I wonder, conversely to what Paul uh, outlined, how much of, of this realignment on the conservative side is, is, uh, is going to stick and, and whether you're hopeful that these communities that have uh, recently embraced, embraced the Tory party under, under Boris's leadership, uh, whether, whether this, this new uh, affiliation is going to prove uh, uh, durable. Yeah, I mean, that's a huge question. I mean, I've always been um, personally convinced that uh, that it's not only possible for the Tories to represent working class people, um, but it's actually a really important thing for the party and the country that it does, because uh, it is only through being a cross class and uh, and uh, and truly national party representing places around the whole of the country that, uh, that the Tories can uh, offer the kind of government that they should, um, that they would then genuinely try to govern in the interests of the whole of the country. Um, I grew up in a, in a working class part of Birmingham and, and my family had, I, my parents were Labour voters until the eighties and switched to the Tories. Then, so I sort of I grew up in a in a family that was sort of small C conservative, uh, and and that started to vote conservative. 
Um, so I sort of I had a kind of instinctive, I suppose, or intuitive feel for um, uh, what it takes for working class families to to vote Tory. Um, and we talk about this like it's an entirely new phenomenon, but obviously there's always been a section of uh, the working class electorate that has voted Tory. And when I was working for the uh, party in opposition in 2008, I helped to run the by-election campaign in Crewe and Nantwich, which um, in many ways uh, uh, was the first red wall seat to go, but nobody talks about it in that way. Um, but when we turned up in Crewe, it was the seat that Labour had held through the entire history of the seat. Um, the candidate was the daughter of the MP who had just died. Uh, the focus groups in the constituency had um, voters. They were furious with Gordon Brown because he'd just abolished the 10p tax rate, uh, which was an effective tax rise for people on lower incomes. Um, uh, but they, you know, the, when they were asked would they vote Tory even as a protest, they were they were saying no, their ancestors, you know, would rise up against them, and <laughs> uh, you know everybody would be spinning in their graves, and they couldn't possibly do it. And by the end of the campaign, by uh, by fighting on a, a fairly sort of uh, you know gritty messages on crime and antisocial behaviour and taxes on uh, lower paid people, um, we won on an absolutely enormous swing. Um, and I've always been convinced it's possible for the Tories to do this, but there is now one big caveat, um, which is um, you know, they know, the party knows that, um, that Labour are abandoning the voters we're talking about uh, because of their positions on cultural issues. So the Tories can win the support of working class voters on cultural issues. But what, they, what the party must do is make sure that it really does change its economic offer. Uh, there's all sorts of reasons, demographics with an ageing uh, population being one of the most obvious. Uh, there are all sorts of reasons why actually taxes overall aren't likely to be any lower in the coming decades. And the Tories really need to, I think, get their heads around the fact that they're not going to be a sort of radically tax-cutting party and government, um, that they need to embrace an active state and higher spending and make sure that there is a real economic offer for the communities we're talking about. And if there isn't, um, if if the Tories in government let down these, these people in these places, um, but they whip them up every now and again on cultural matters and you know win elections on cultural dividing lines then that is the politics of the republican party in america over the last 20 years and just look at where that led to with the politics of donald trump and the state that the republican party is in now uh, so so yes there is a huge opportunity for the tories i think it's fantastic for the country if the tories can genuinely be a genuinely national party uh, but they need to change and they need to deliver for the new voters. Sure, and this is this is uh, fantastic, Nick. It, it really, you really just uh, got ahead of our of our uh, next question. I did want to uh, uh, zero in on on some of the policy issues that that can uh, give meaning to this uh, policy realignment. You know, it seems if there's anything we can learn from Labour's uh, fate in these constituencies is that you, you can't take these voters for granted, and and so equally, I, I you know I, I some of the the coverage of this by election in particular. 
uh, uh, goes to show that you know these voters are going to be demanding uh, concrete um, uh, concrete policy uh, uh, changes from the Tory party, and that you know it it, 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 it is simply not sufficient to have a, a you know strong pro Brexit message and a sort of a more patriotic line than the Labour has. Uh, for, in order to, to keep uh, these voters under the, the Tory mantle, right? And th there's going to be uh, there's going to be a lot of uh, policy um, to hash out in this in, in this one. And I wonder if, if you could give us maybe some some visibility on on what that's looking like within the the, the Tory um, within Tory circles. We've we've been hearing a lot about the Northern Research Group that, that uh, Jake Barry chairs. And uh, what what do you um uh, what, what do you think are the roadblocks towards achieving this policy realignment? It seems like uh, investments in, in public services, investments in transit networks, infrastructure, uh, education, vocational training, these are all going to be priorities for, for, uh, for Tory MPs from, from these northern constituencies. And do you think, how do you see the sort of uh, uh, the battle lines being drawn within the Tory party between, uh, you know, these um, more kind of uh, uh, fiscally uh, liberal uh, uh, MPs uh, and, and on one side and on the other, the sort of more traditional Thatcherite tax cutting, uh, regulation slashing wing. Uh, is that is that um, how do you see that sort of division at the at this moment? Yeah, I suppose the minimalist version of leveling up, as Boris calls it, um, is that there should be more investments in transport infrastructure and that kind of thing, uh, which is necessary but not nearly sufficient. Uh, there needs to be a really uh, sophisticated industrial strategy and regional policy uh, that brings proper meaningful uh, growth to uh, to um, to the regions, um, uh, and that needs to be serious growth. It needs to be based on on genuine private enterprise, not just some sort of redistributed public sector jobs. Uh, um, it can't. Um, it can't just be the you know the kind of old, the old model from the new Labour days of, um, of you know letting the city go gangbusters and then and then sort of redistributing the money around the country through the public sector and and retail you know retail is an important sector but there needs to be there needs to be more, um, uh, like, um, industries and sectors that are capable of generating, um. Uh, growth and inward investment into those places um and and that does involve um accepting a completely different role for the state uh which i think many conservatives will be uncomfortable with um and i'd say there are probably three off the top of my head i'd say there are probably three uh big potential roadblocks a one you might call the treasury treasury orthodoxy which is to say which is to say sure we'll um we might borrow to invest in transport infrastructure, but we're not prepared to spend enough on uh, things like um, technical and vocational education, which I think is a really important part of recovery for these places. Um, uh, we They might still uh, want to uh, hold down public spending in all sorts of different um, public services. Uh, the second uh, is immigration where yes the country has taken control of its immigration system and the um, policy of European free movement is no more but the government has introduced a points-based system which is modeled on policies uh, from countries like Australia which are actually designed to increase immigration and I suspect the uh, the numbers um, uh, coming to Britain will not be going down in the coming years uh, so there may be some disquiet about that 
And the third is how the government manages to reconcile what it's saying on climate change and its ambition to get to net zero uh, with what it's trying to say about um, uh, uh, growth and employment and the cost of living for people uh, with modest incomes because um, the logic of some of the net zero um, uh, policies, I think, uh, is likely to involve uh, being pretty punitive when it comes to uh, car drivers when it comes to refitting um, gas boilers and things like that, all of which has the potential to become very unpopular quite quickly. And uh, Paul, you um, you know, you you belong to a, a very an illustrious tradition within within labor circles that you know uh, that is uh, deeply anchored in in the trade union uh, uh, kind of base of the party, and and it seems like that was that was um, a huge part of the pitch to working class voters is through. Through the the role that that unions played within the party, and how how do you see your your side of this equation? Do you think that do you think that the labor um, still has an edge over traditional uh, progressive policy issues such as you know industrial policy, uh, you know redistributive uh, uh, you know taxation of, of the kind that uh, uh, that Nick was was talking about? How do you see your um, these policy uh, uh, issues um, playing out? Well, I mean, once upon a time, those sorts of issues were, were front and centre of what the Labour Party was about before it you know, decided to immerse itself in identity politics and, and everything else that goes with it. That was, that was the bread and butter for the Labour Party. They understood that actually you know, they, were, they were there to reflect the concerns and advance the interests of, of working class people. Um, I mean, I've always said, you know, lest, lest people misunderstand me, I've always said that, you know, the, the Labour Party at its best is that coalition between Hartlepool and, and Hampstead, Hampstead being the kind of middle class liberal element of it, Hartlepool being the more kind of blue collar working class element of it. And, and the Labour Party has always been at its most successful when it's managed to, to hold those two parts of the, the coalition together. So I certainly don't argue that all Labour has to do is to appeal to blue collar Britain and, and then that's it, you know, we're on our way to, to victory. What I do think is there's always, for many years, there's been this space, I think, on the political spectrum in Britain where, where millions of people were, but it wasn't reflected in the upper echelons of politics where, you know, they were to the, to the left on economics. Um, so, you know, they didn't like the gap between rich and poor, they believed in tackling regional inequalities and boardroom excesses, they believed in progressive taxation, they wanted a higher minimum wage and so on. Um, but they were to the right, if you like, on culture, so they understood the importance of patriotism, traditional values, social solidarity, uh, and that kind of thing. And, and that really wasn't represented um, for many years within the, within the mainstream of, of politics. Um, and the Labour Party, uh, sorry, the, the Conservative Party now, unquestionably is starting to tap into it. I mean, I, I, I detect, and Nick obviously knows the Conservative Party better than I do, but I detect there still is, you know, something of this ideological struggle within the Tory party between, you know, the, if you like, the one nation conservatives who believe in, in an interventionist state and the more kind of Thatcherite neoliberals who want to roll back the frontiers of the state and let market forces dominate everything. Um, and I guess the jury's out on, in the long term, you know, how that's going, how that struggle is going to, to, to play out. But, you know, from, I would love to, to see a Labour Party that traditionally, you know, in an economic sense, um, has all the things you would expect it to do, have a radical economic policy, 
understand the importance of the, of the place of government in the functioning of the economy, places for employment as the primary goal of economic policy, campaigns for a higher minimum wage, trade union rights, closing the gap between rich and poor, reindustrializing some of our deindustrialized areas and challenging the excesses of the market, investing, making us competitive, all of all of that kind of thing. Um, but what we what we saw in 2017 and 2019 is that that isn't enough. And there are people on the left who think that all you need to do is, is promise to throw money at people, um, even the poorest people in our society, and they'll come flocking to you. Um, and the proof of that is in 2017 and 2019, when Labour went to, to the country with arguably a more radical manifesto than, than anything that, that it, had, it had put before the country for, for many, many years, possibly ever. Um, and it was still rejected. Uh, and that lesson for the Labour Party is, look, it's not just about the economy, stupid. There are other things that matter for, to, to people. You know, that importance of social solidarity and the sense of place is, is key to people. And if all you do is think, you know, you can promise them an extra £20 in their pay packet every month and a few percentage points on GDP, you're going to find yourself seriously disappointed. So, so you need a radical economic policy. I think the Labour Party needs to articulate that much more and put that front and centre, but also couple it with understanding, the, you know, the, the cultural politics of place and belonging, and articulating those in a way that resonates with, with you know, red wall seats and, and working class communities. Well, thanks for that pivot away from economics to culture, um, because I want to talk a little bit about. Um, uh, the cultural wars in the UK, the, um, the war on the work, essentially. Uh, because if you go back from the 2017 election, the 2019 election, 2019 election, I think one of the big differences was how Brexit was used as kind of a wedge issue that put Labour in a kind of an impossible situation. Well, I don't think it was exploited as much in 2017. And, and since the 2019 election, there's been a lot of talks about, among how, uh, among Conservative uh, MPs, especially among those former Red War seats, how do you keep these seats safe? And then all these MPs see these cultural wars as the most powerful wedge issue they have against Labour and kind of forcing it, cornering it into taking unpopular positions. Um, is the war on the woke strategically the best move for the Tories to consolidate their gains and corner Labour into holding these mostly unpopular woke opinions? Or is there a risk of being of seeming like your very um, futile party focused on secondary issues if you do that? Uh, Nick first. And this is the last question, Mike. Yeah, I, I, to be honest, I wouldn't quite put it in these terms. Um, so at the end of the day, the country is largely um, a decent place. Uh, and people, by and large, are nice people who are respectful to others. Um, and and you know, they want to be polite to one another. And uh, And I think one thing that we absolutely do need to avoid is... Um, is, a, is an excessively zealous approach to this particular issue that ends up just being a bit mean. Um, so, um, so the problem, and I think this is similar to what we've been discussing throughout on cultural issues, the problem with you know, the so-called woke stuff uh, is being driven by a pretty small minority of people who really believe it, and then it's uh, being amplified by people in positions of influence and institutions who are afraid of doing the wrong thing and are basically surrendering before it. So I think the job of the Tories 
is to is to basically um, take the um, polite, commonsensical view of uh, what I would estimate to be at least three quarters of the country, which is to say, um, uh, you know, racism is a bad thing, uh, and we're against racial discrimination, but we don't believe in weird imported theories from America that racialize every particular problem. There are other factors behind all sorts of problems like economic geography or social class or whatever. We think we should be polite to people who are trans, but it doesn't mean that we should change the law in ways that jeopardize the privacy and security of women. Um, so it's, I, think, I, I think it's really about just trying to hold the line against some of the excesses. And then I think there's a, um, there's a broader question about um, why is it that a lot of uh, public organizations in particular uh, fall into the traps uh, of kind of woke politics. Um, and it, I, think, I think there is an argument that uh, things like the Human Rights Act, uh, things like the Equality Act um, uh, are driving some of this behaviour because, you know, if you tell a police officer that before he or she goes out and thinks about enforcing the law and uh, arresting criminals, that they've got to think about the human rights of the people who are being arrested and uh, and they've got to think about equality impact assessments and things like this, uh, then you can see how organisations quite quickly get removed from their sense of fundamental purpose, uh, which is one of the things that I think people are very concerned about, whether it's about you know, the NHS public, publishing um, weird glossaries about... Um, black and indigenous people of colour, which is a terminology that doesn't even make sense in this country, or whether it's about the police um, uh, you know, um, taking the knee and losing control of, um, of violent protests and things like that. So I think, I think by and large, uh, the Tories don't need to look like they are enthusiastically declaring a culture war. They need to um, defend the kind of sensible, culturally conservative positions that I think most people have. Um, and then I think they need to think about the legislative frameworks that uh, that make some of these institutions behave in the way that they do. Um, Paul, I know there's been a few attempts by um, Keir Starmer to kind of move away from these cultural wars, but it seems that Labour is very easily baited into taking um, the work position. And, you know, um, despite Keir Starmer's wanting to make use of a new flag of veterans and dressing smartly, as per the strategic report of the Labour Party that was released, uh, leaked in February. Um, it's also a kiss armor that will take the knee during the Black Lives Matter protest. Um, can Labour really pivot away from these cultural issues, or is it just too easy to bait it into talking about it? Uh, I mean, in theory, it can pivot away, um, but I don't see that happening anytime soon. I think that the party and the wider Labour movement is so immersed in this stuff now um, and the, the demographic of the, the party in having, as I said before, you know, over, over recent years become so more middle class itself, so more kind of metropolitan in its, in its worldview and, and embracing the precepts of, of a militant cosmopolitan liberalism. Um, and the party is filled with people with that ideology. It's very, very difficult to see how they can suddenly say, no, actually, that stuff's going into the background 
Um, and we're going to concentrate much more on the bread and butter issues of, of jobs and pay, uh, you know, the, the, poli the policies around law and order and immigration and national security, all of the things that, that matter to working class voters rather than, you know, issues such as gender fluidity, etc. Um, I mean, I'm certainly not somebody who says there isn't a place to discuss some of this stuff. Of course, there is, um, but it has to take its place in, in the queue. And I tend to agree with much, if not all, of what, what Nick said, actually. I think there is a basic decency um, among the vast majority of people in this country. They think, actually, you know, we should treat each other with kindness and respect and we should allow people to, to live their lives in the way that, in the way that they wish, um, free from harassment or persecution. Um, but if it becomes overbearing, if it becomes authoritarian, if you tell me that I must say things that I don't believe, or if you try to cancel me or destroy my livelihood for not, for not articulating your particular view, um, then it becomes completely wrong. And, and as Nick said, this is largely the work of a small but very vocal minority of people. And it, it strikes me that there is, frankly, a cowardice in the upper echelons of British politics and wider society of too few people who are willing to put their head above the parapet and say, actually, some of this stuff is wrong and some of this stuff is oppressive and we need to challenge it. Um, and this idea that if you, you know, if you're in any sort of position of public influence, if you're a politician, if you're, you know, a manager in the public services, if you're in charge of, of a business, etc., that if you step out of line you can, on, on some of these, these issues, you can expect to be cancelled and, and have your reputation destroyed. Um, this, is, this is pretty serious stuff and we need to treat it seriously and we need to, to, to start pushing back against it. I mean, I'm frankly sceptical that the, the Tories will, will do it. Um, I mean, we do have to remember who's been in power for the last kind of 11 years or whatever when when most of this stuff has, has taken root. Um, and even, you know, you see Boris Johnson at the G7 a couple of days ago talking about, I think he said something like, you need a gender neutral recovery or whatever it is. And, and you kind of think, well, actually, are these the people who can be trusted to, to push back against some of this kind of militant wokeness? But I suspect that once once enough people start putting their head above the parapet, um, then, then others will follow. But I think there's a culture of fear at the moment where people think it's just safer for the sake of an easy life, you know, I'll, I'll just keep my head down. But all of all the while that's going on, um, you know, the, the, the polarisation in our country over some of this stuff is deepening um, and people are being cancelled left, right and centre. So, you know, I, I don't think we should have a culture war in this country. I would rather one didn't have to take place, but unfortunately it is taking place because some people decided some years ago to start one. Um, and, you know, either we, we sit back and let them get away with enforcing their ideology on, on the rest of the country, or we say, actually, enough's enough, we're going to start challenging you on, on some of this stuff. Well, wonderful. This is, this is a really uh, ominous place to, to end our conversation. Uh, we've really covered the full spectrum of issues from, from economics to culture uh, that, that have been unveiled by the, the ongoing realignment uh, of British politics has crystallized around the, the Hartlepool uh, by-election. And we're, we're so thankful to both of our guests, Paul Embury uh, and Nick Timothy, for joining us on this episode. Thank you so much, and we hope uh, to have you. Thank you. 
Great. Well, Nick Timothy and Paul Embry are, are out of the green room. What did you think of this episode, Francois? I thought, I thought it was really interesting because it kind of touches on the largest trend that is going on in um, social democratic centre-left parties across Europe, which is a party which is weakening electorally, largely because it has become uh, captured by a kind of middle-class activist base which is progressively drifting apart from its kind of uh, working class roots. And, and as a result, it ends up being a party talking to kind of a very select few of you know, public sector workers and, uh, um, and some immigrants and some minorities. But it, it doesn't have a kind of strength to be able to be a national party anymore. And um, in some countries, it was explicitly uh, theorized. I know in France back in 2012, I think, uh, Terra Nova, which is kind of a um, think tank of a socialist party, had explicitly said that the party should no longer aim to try and target these kind of working class voters and instead go for kind of Obama type of coalition of different kind of minorities put together. That was, you know, back when uh, the Obama coalition was all the rage in, in Europe. Um, that message didn't go well at all. And it's been a massive opportunity for the right to become a kind of mass party of different, crossing um, different class groups and uh, it makes me think of ex- expression by André Malraux, the great, um, the great author who became Charles de Gaulle's Minister of Culture, who said, le, who said that the Gaullist party was a metro at 6 p.m. Essentially, all these kind of different people from different, um, different classes coming back from work, from a factory, from, from the office. And, it, and I, think, I think the way, way that these centre-left parties have positioned themselves has been a kind of a golden opportunity for right-wing parties to be that um, metro à 6 heures party. Yeah. Yeah, and um, you know, and, and it really that really raises the question of the the culture wars. I mean, um, I mean, and, and you are seeing the two um, the two issues kind of converge, right? The economics, uh, the the the, um, the, to- the Tory party is is, um, is is shifting on economics towards a more communitarian, uh, less fiscally conservative uh, stance. You know, a stance that is more more. Um, Willing to invest large uh, sums of money in, in uh, decaying towns and areas and, and economic uh, sectors hardly hit by by uh, globalization, but at the same time, I think the culture is kind of it, it underlies uh, the whole realignment. There's there's um there's a, a sense of craving for a national uh, for for nationhood for for the communitarian bonds of of, uh, of you know uh, family place and, and and nation as a whole and and. Um, and I, what, what I thought was so interesting in Nick's uh, response was, was the idea that, that the Tories should not, um, you know, jump uh, headfirst into the cultural wars as, as enthusiastically as the, the, the right wing of the party is, is willing to do. And, and, and it, should, um, it should handle it in, in the way that showcases the best of British, uh, the best of British uh, character, you know, the, the sort of the, the moderate, uh, the moderate common sense that, uh, you know, certainly... Right, right, exactly. Uh, that that you know um, uh, that clearly condemns all all forms of uh, discrimination and bigotry, while it's not uh, replacing them with uh, with an equally unsavory form of uh, racialized identity politics. Right. So, so I thought that was very I thought that was very interesting to hear from Nick, who's who's been a strategist, who's advised uh, you know conservative governments in in some of the more more critical times of, under Theresa May. After the the, um, the referendum, so so I think uh, so I think that that part was was very interesting. Yeah, um, uh, he, he he's right about the cultural issues. I think there's another risk, which is um, 
by focusing too much on cultural wars, there's a risk for a right-wing party because for reason these wedge issues work so well as Brexit had done, you need, first of all, voters to identify this to be an important issue. Now, maybe work is identifies an important issue, who knows? But there also needs to be a sense that by voting for this party, I am going to solve the issue. And my 2019 became very clear that by voting for the Tory party, you're going to get Brexit done. Uh, if you voted for Labour, you didn't really know what's going to happen. And, and you knew that the, the, the Brexit uh, um, purgatory would last for an, an extra few years or so. Um, it's not clear to me that voting for the Conservatives at this point is a way for uh, voters to say, OK, by voting Conservative, I am going to end the cultural wars, I'm going to end the work movement. It's not very clear at this point. And I think that's one of the risks of the Conservatives is by focusing on this, you risk being seen as a kind of unserious party focusing on secondary things rather than the most important issues. And secondly, it's not clear that you can do much on those issues by voting Conservative. Um, so I think that's something to, to, to take into account. I think something else as well, um, which which I think is especially important is the kind of difference between message and, and, and messenger. I remember having this conversation back in 2016. I was actually quite enthusiastic about Theresa May. Uh, you know, I was reading about Nick Timothy and and whatnot, and I and and I, and I thought in Fiona Hill and all that team. And I thought um, they had kind of touched a vein of this kind of realignment, and they had kind of sensed sensed it. And I thought I thought that was could be very popular electorally. And I tragically said to my friend uh, Julian, who, who who will remember this, that I thought Mayism had a great future ahead. Now, obviously, that didn't go very well um, because I kind of saw a message and didn't realize a messenger wasn't the best person adapted to take, take that message. So I rehad this conversation with him the other day, and he uh, sent me an article from The Economist from back in 2018 talking about this tension um, uh, in, in the party. And the article, uh, really pr- in a really prescient way, said... Um, maybe this message is powerful, but it doesn't have the right messenger for it. You know, Theresa May uh, isn't the kind of person to shake things up enough. And in the last paragraph or so, he says that maybe Boris Johnson will be a much stronger fit to to carry that realignment. And he was perfectly yeah. right. And right, and and paradoxically, right. I mean, uh, there there are aspects of, of Bojo of, of Boris that are that are in fact, I think, further away from the the working class core of. Voters that, that the Tories are increasingly tapping into. There, there are parts of his current personality that are, that are, in fact, I think, ironically, uh, you know, anathema to the working class uh, character of these parts of the country. Right here, here comes this, this, you know, a paragon of British uh, elitism. Right, Oxford educated. Right, a, an eminent classicist who can recite, you know, the, the stanzas of, of uh, Homer and Hesiod, you know, by heart. Uh, when prompted, and 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 yet he's uh, somehow able to to capture, uh, you know, a, a sense of uh, patriotic uh, loyalty to to uh, Britain that that uh, no one in, in, in Labour seems uh, seems seems willing or able to. So I think I think uh, Boris plays uh, plays a very um, uh, an almost mysterious role in this in this whole realignment. I think uh, I think at first at first sight he wouldn't uh, he didn't. It didn't occur to a lot of people that he would uh, be at the center of, of this realignment. I think the Brexit issue uh, was was key. I mean, um, he kind of came out strongly, uh, strongly in, in, in favor of leaving uh, in a way that that uh, shocked and, and surprised and even shocked a lot of people. I mean, he was you know very uh, very much part of the, the Brussels kind of bureaucracy uh, when he was a reporter, I think, or, or a columnist of the Daily Telegraph, and and so I think. Um, 
I think the the um the personality and character of Boris Johnson has been uh, has been really um has been really mysterious in, in some ways, but um but it just goes to show that the uh, the the realignment is ongoing and uh, and um and we we were so happy to do this episode kind of hone you know. Uh, just just one yeah. thing before we go, I have one anecdote I absolutely need to tell about Boris Johnson. I'm not sure if you read this article, this fantastic article by Tom McTagg in The Atlantic, um, which is entitled, Boris Johnson Knows Exactly What He's Doing, I think, something along those lines. And to talk about how this, he's kind of a strange match for this realignment, he gives this anecdote. A few years ago, David Cameron was caught um, by a journalist not knowing the price of kind of a basic staple good. I forgot what it was, bread or something. And um, and he got caught like that, and and so he says, well, uh, Boris Johnson was asked a very similar question, and he got the answer uh, pretty much exactly bang on. Uh, and then a few seconds later, he's saying, you know, I can also give you the exact price of champagne if you want, um, and and, it, and it's so good. It's just it's, it's, he doesn't care. He knows he knows he's a he knows he's a he's a, he's a, he's a posh um, he's a posh guy, and, and and he was he was born in kind of a, a upper class family, but he he plays on it and. Cameron was a bit ashamed of it, some extent, and I think Cameron kind of uses it as an armor. You can't, you can't mock something he mocks himself. Um, so that's that's what's so so funny about him. Well, anyway, uh, it was it was a fun episode to do, and uh, we were glad to have uh, Paul and Nick. And uh, thank you so much for listening. We'll see you, we'll see you on another episode very soon.